Robert Capon once wrote that paradox is the only basket large enough to hold truth. An interesting statement when we come to the scriptures. I think oftentimes we're scared of paradox when it comes to the scripture. We want things to be pretty black and white, pretty cut and dried. We want things to make logical sense. And yet so often in scripture, we come to paradox. We come to things that don't seem to make sense. Some things that seem to even contradict. J.I. Packer, Anglican theologian, concludes that the root cause of many errors in the church have, quote, come from a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to not let God be wiser than men. As the apostle Paul says, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And he does so by putting truths in front of us so often that just don't seem to make sense to the naked eye, but prayerfully through the eyes of faith by the Spirit, they start to ring true. Well, in our passage for today, we, we get one of these moments in scriptures. But interestingly enough, we get to watch someone else deal with paradox. We find John the Baptist here coming into personal contact, personal contact with, with paradox, with what seems to be foolish. A sinless Savior has come to him to receive the baptism of repentance. That certainly doesn't seem to make sense. It certainly doesn't make sense, at least at first, to John. But Lord willing, I hope together to see that in this seeming foolishness and this seeming contradiction, we find salvation. We find very important truths. Martin Luther says of this passage that, Here in in these short verses, we see the most majestic doctrines of the Christian faith. Of course, we, we see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons at work here in this passage. We we learn of Christology, that is the person and work of Christ, Christ fully God, fully man, and his actions and history to secure our redemption. And finally, Luther says we find justification. That is, how is it that sinners are made right before a holy God apart from works of the law? Now, perhaps it would be folly to try to explicate all of these things in one sermon, but I am a fool. And so uh, we're going to hit on all of these, but but I do want to drill down on really one fundamental thing that is going on in this passage, though there's lots of things we could look at. I want us to see together that the whole of Christ's saving work is figured to us here in these short verses. And to defend that, I want to look at it in three ways. First, a righteous judgment. Second, a righteous fulfillment. And finally, a righteous declaration. So first, let's consider a righteous judgment. Here in in Matthew 3, we get the first in-person meeting of John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus. 
But Jesus' reputation clearly precedes him. John knows some things about the Messiah. He's a good Jewish boy who has studied the scripture. He, he has some expectations of what the Messiah will come and do. And, and at least to some degree, he understands himself as one who will announce the coming of this Messiah. We also understand that John knows that this Messiah has come to somehow take away the sins of the world. But what John is perhaps a little confused about is how it is that Jesus will take away the sins of the world. And it's, it's this that John seems to be scandalized by, seems to be troubled by, the paradoxical nature of Christ's saving work. So how is it that John understands the Messiah will come and take away sin? Well, if we back up a little bit, we can, we can see how he understands this. John is preaching repentance to the people of God. He's saying to them, this is your last chance. Why? Well, he tells us, because the wrath of God has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and God's wrath is coming upon all unrighteousness. John says this, he says, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And there is one coming, John explains, that is bringing a baptism of judgment, one with, with Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in hand. And he will clear the threshing floor. This is, this is John's sermon and preparation for Jesus. If anything doesn't square with God's plan to bring about righteousness, they will be set aside. They will be demolished, thrown into unquenchable fire, John says. I mean, John really gets hellfire and brimstone. This is his style. He gets how that goes. His message in Matthew 3 is quite literally turn or burn. That's, that's what he is preaching. The great and terrible day of Yahweh has come. So what side of the flame will you find yourself on? We find throughout the Psalms and prophets, this language that John is, is pulling from, the image of hot winds of judgment coming and burning away chaff, which is the wicked. And it's only the righteous who will stand in the judgment, Psalm 1 tells us. And this, this is how John seems to see Jesus coming and bringing about righteousness by wiping out that which is unrighteous. For those who have uh, heard uh, our story, you know that I, I grew up in, in Pensacola, Florida, uh, spent my high school years there. One of the features, you could say, of Pensacola, Florida is Pensacola Christian College. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this institution, but it, it has quite uh, made quite a name for itself in being a, a fairly legalistic institution. Lots of stories have gone out about what exactly goes on on campus. I, I heard one. I, I think it's a joke. I hope it's a joke, but, but a young lady was expelled from the college for having a, a hole, a slight tear in her bathing suit right below the knee. 
Think about it. These are the kind of stories that came out of Pensacola Christian College. Well, if you were pursuing a degree in ministry at this university, there was a certain amount of street preaching that you would have to engage in. And the location of choice for this street preaching was right around the corner from my house, a busy intersection. And all four corners would have men, young men with big Bibles preaching like John the Baptist. I can remember uh, one day driving up to this intersection and I, my vehicle in high school was a Chrysler LeBaron convertible. That sounds fancy, um, but it was constantly overheating. So I always had the heat on full blast uh, to vent the engine, uh, which wasn't a big deal because the convertible roof didn't work. So it just always stayed down. So this engine heat is mixing with the humidity of the Florida panhandle. And I can remember driving up to the intersection and one of these guys looking at me and saying something like, you look awful warm in that convertible. You better get used to it because you're going to burn for your sin. Now, this was offensive to a a 17-year-old young man, but they're pulling their preaching right from the prophets, aren't they? This preaching that John the Baptist is bringing about that that wrath is coming. The wrath of God against evil is coming. Receive this baptism of repentance or you're done. The prophetic cry is quite clear. And John says, unless you start bearing fruit in keeping with this repentance, you will be cut off. Well, you can imagine John's surprise when Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up as John is preaching this message and says, I'm here to be baptized. I'm here to receive this this baptism of repentance. And John, of course, as we all would be, is very confused. The passage tells us that he tried to hinder Jesus. He tried to stop this from from happening. John recognizes that if anyone is going to get baptized in this scenario, it's going to be John. Jesus needs to do the baptism. According to John, Jesus clearly doesn't understand what this baptism is all about, or he would never have asked for it. How does he who knows no sin receive a baptism of repentance? Well, Jesus gives John the answer. He says, to fulfill all righteousness. So if first we have John's expectation of a righteous judgment, we next have Jesus' explanation of a righteous fulfillment. Look at verse 14 with me, if you will. John would have prevented Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. Now there's a lot of things going on here, manifold meanings in Christ's baptism. But but I want to think about this phrase for a moment, fulfilling all righteousness. We already know what John's expectation is for how righteousness will come about. We've seen that in how he preaches. The unrighteous 
will be wiped out. That's how this goes down. And he's not wrong. That is what Jesus will ultimately do. But interestingly enough, Jesus says that it's in his baptism that this will take place. Now, interpreters have disagreed on exactly what this phrase means to fulfill all all righteousness. Many have concluded that Jesus is essentially saying that he will be obedient to all of God's commands, to, to the Mosaic law by submitting himself to this baptism. And theologically, this is certainly true, isn't it? That Jesus is obedient to the law. We find Matthew showing us Jesus, who is the new Israel, who will come and be obedient in the ways that Israel was not obedient. And yet I'm not sure that that's exactly what's going on in this phrase to fulfill all righteousness. There is no statute or law given to us concerning a baptism of repentance, at least certainly not a water baptism. In fact, if we think about John's very project of baptism for repentance, we find that it's, it's very different than the temple system. It's very different than the law. He's not sending people to the temple for purification. He's calling them back out to the wilderness. He's, he's somehow resetting the system. It's one of the reasons why religious leaders will come and look on John and say, what are you doing? This, this isn't how one finds repentance. This isn't how this goes. You, you, you go to the temple. So I'm not sure that the baptism fulfilling the law of God is, is the best way to understand this. So, so what is? Well, if we consider the first few chapters of Matthew, some of the passages that we have looked at through Advent and the weeks following, Matthew is constantly using the language of fulfillment, as he will throughout his gospel. And generally, this language of fulfillment is pointing to realities that Jesus is bringing about messianic promises, promises from the Old Testament, promises from the prophets. And Matthew seems to have a particular affinity for the prophet Isaiah and and his prophecies concerning the Messiah. We read one this morning from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice and righteousness to the nations. A lot of similar things going on in Jesus' baptism. The God, the Father, looking on this servant with delight, the spirit coming down on him, and this promise that he will bring about righteousness. And and this certainly doesn't contradict John's expectations, does it? And yet Isaiah continues. He says of this servant, he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish he will faithfully bring forth righteousness or justice. I mean, crying out, raising his voice, breaking reeds, extinguishing wicks. This seems to be very much in line with John's preaching methodology, doesn't it? This is how John seems to see that righteousness will come about. 
But as Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord, the one that John is a forerunner to, will bring forth righteousness with gentleness. He'll bring forth righteousness with compassion. How can this be? How can one bring about justice or righteousness without crushing some heads? Well, Isaiah later tells us that this servant will make righteous the many by bearing their iniquities. Jesus would certainly be right to show up on the banks of the Jordan this day and grab the megaphone from John and start preaching hellfire. Jesus could do that. He would be in the right to do that. But from the beginning of Matthew, we see Matthew showing forth a Messiah who comes and unites himself with his people. And in this passage of Christ's baptism, it it does fall right in line with Matthew's teaching of the incarnation. The eternal son of God adding to himself a human nature, becoming like us in every way except for sin. And though he was without sin, he plunges himself into humanity's sinful condition not only by taking on humanity, but by taking on our very sin. And this is the paradoxical way that Christ brings about righteousness, by himself becoming unrighteousness. And at the banks of the Jordan, as all of these sinners have come and been washed in this water, repenting their sins, Jesus steps into that sinful water, taking to himself the sins of the world. This this really is a figure of the cross. In fact, Jesus himself will go on to tie the two together. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism in which I am baptized? Looking backwards and forwards, his baptism and the cross. As one commentator explains, Jesus' baptism and his cross are one thing. His works begin where he stands in solidarity with sinners, elbow to elbow in the same bathwater as prostitutes, tax collectors, and all manner of religious rejects. His work ends on the cross where he hangs in solidarity with thieves promising the faithful one paradise. His work begins with water. His work ends with water and blood flowing from his side. And at his baptism, the heavens are open to him. And at his cross, the heavens are open to sinners. As Luther says, Christ accepted baptism from John for the reason that he was entering into our stead. Indeed, our person, that is becoming a sinner for us. Taking upon himself the sins which he had not committed and wiping them out and drowning them in his holy baptism. For some, this might seem like a far-fetched claim, but it does seem to be how Paul explains it in Romans 6. 
that the old sinful man was buried with Christ in baptism, united to Christ and buried. And we are risen to new life because of that reality. He who knew no sin was baptized into sin, that sinners might be baptized into the righteousness of God. And this is how Jesus fulfills all righteousness by himself becoming the chaff that is blown away by judgment. I think oftentimes we see baptism as, as primarily a positive event and, and, and that it is. It's a beautiful reality of seeing the picture of one engrafted into Christ's body, the church. But baptism throughout scripture has also had a, a negative reality, if you will, a judgment reality. Peter speaks of the flood and the days of Noah as a baptism where the world that was is wiped away and new creation dawns. Paul speaks of Israel crossing the Red Sea as a baptism where their old identity, slavery in Egypt, is buried with rider and horse and washed away by the tide of the Red Sea. Paul, as we've just mentioned, speaks about the old Adam being buried in baptism. And Jesus, as we have seen, speaks of his cross, his substitutionary death as a baptism, where he is cut off for our sake. Jesus takes on sin and fulfills all righteousness by succumbing to the winnowing fork of God. John's preaching was not wrong. God's axe is in his hand. But the tree to be cut down is Christ himself on our behalf. What an interesting paradox, one that is scandalous and hard to receive, but it is to us salvation. But it's not merely judgment that we see in this passage. Finally, I want to consider together a righteous declaration. Matthew's gospel says, immediately Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens are opened. I like how Mark's gospel puts it. He says that the heavens are torn asunder, that there's this urgency at Jesus' baptism for God to make a revelation, that the heavens are, are torn open. This tearing open even is a fulfillment of, or an answer to one of Isaiah's prayers, isn't it? Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear them open, come down, reveal yourself. Isaiah says, do awesome things that we would not expect. Do paradoxes among us. Perhaps Isaiah had a similar picture in mind that, that John had, that God would open, rend, tear open the heavens and come in judgment. But we find here that, that the heavens are open, that God does come, but he comes in the form of human flesh. Not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And here we see the spirit come, not as he often comes in the spirit of the day and, and the wind and the noise that cause people to hide and fear. But he comes in the form of a dove, not unlike that dove that descended at the baptism of Noah during the flood. 
coming with an olive branch, coming in peace, saying that judgment is over. New creation has dawned. And we hear the almighty voice of the Father, the voice that we hear about in Isaiah 42, that voice that brought the world into existence, that gives breath to all creatures. That voice calls out from heaven, not with a verdict of condemnation, but a verdict of justification. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased The son that though never sinned was made sin is now seen as pleasing before the father. Now this announcement from God points to many wonderful realities of Christ's kingship, of the inauguration of his messianic mission, of his public ministry. There's so much here, but I do want to continue to zero in on this reality. that as much of the Father's verdict says about Jesus, it says so much about you. You who have faith in Christ, you have been baptized into the triune name. Because you see, in our baptism, we too come to the banks of the Jordan. Or just as Jesus was plunged into our sin, we are plunged into his righteousness. As John Calvin says, he, Jesus, received the same baptism with us in order to assure believers that they are engrafted into his body, that they are indeed buried with him in baptism, that they might rise to newness of life just as Christ was risen from the dead. Calvin goes on to explain that the special reason for Christ's baptism is that he might consecrate baptism, that we might have it in common with him. And because we are plunged into the righteousness of Christ, we have already received the same verdict that God gives to his son. Well-pleased, justified, loved, righteous. Calvin continues in this passage by saying that the love of God rests on Christ in such a manner as to diffuse itself from him to all of us. What a beautiful reality of our union with Christ, that we receive the same sermon from God that Jesus received. You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. I think for most of us, we come uh, each week with a general sense that God does love us, that Jesus has died for our sins, that we have been made right before God. But I I also think, and rightly so, that there's an awareness that we are not as we should be. That's constant tension. It's a constant paradox for us, isn't it? But I think we often think that if I would just shape up this area, if if I could just fix this sin that seems to haunt me over and over again, that that God would certainly love me even more, that he would certainly accept me even more. Well, beloved, you should rid yourself of that sin. You should endeavor to kill sin, absolutely. But hear this loud and clear. 
That's sin. All of them, whatever they may be, were stirred into the Jordan River. And Christ was baptized into them. And that sin was nailed to the cross because you are, as Paul says, buried with him in baptism. And so as Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because that's how God already considers you. Dead to sin, alive in his son. And God looks upon you this day and says he's pleased with you. That he loves you, that you are righteous. So much so that Paul can say, so who can bring a charge against God's elect? Everything chargeable was washed away in baptism, was nailed to the cross with Christ. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God and his son, by his spirit, preaches to you who have faith in him this day. You are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together.